Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a long episode of the podcast Walking with Dante. We are in Purgatorio. We are at the beginning of Canto 11. We're at lines 1 through 24. Just to remind you, we are walking slowly through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are nearing the middle of the second canticle, Purgatorio. We are on the first terrace of Purgatory proper. We have been given hints that this is the terrace of pride. We've heard words like humility and Proud, so we kind of assume now we know where we are. And we've seen the first of the penitents approaching us carrying unbelievably big boulders that almost squash them. They then are about to enter into the recitation of their prayer. This is a long passage, as I say, lines 1 through 24 of Canto 11 of Purgatorio. This is a long episode of the podcast, as I've said. You might want to, in fact, divide this episode into more than one listening, just because it does bang on because the prayer is so long. And we kind of have to deal with it as one gigantic chunk. This is going to become more and more of our problem throughout Purgatorio and Paradiso. This is my English translation of the passage. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along, you can print it off, or you can continue the conversation there with any thoughts that you might have. Without anything else to say at this second, let's just get to the opening 24 lines of Canto 11 of Purgatorio, the prayer of the penitent being squashed under their rocks. Our Father, who remains in heaven, not contained there, except by the greater love you have for your first creations on high. Praise be your name and your might from every created thing, as is your due whenever we give thanks for your sweet breath. Let the peace of your kingdom come to us, for we can't get it on our own, because it won't naturally come to us, even with all our ingenuity. Just as your angels willingly make sacrifices to you, singing Hosanna, let people make the same. Give our daily manna to us today. Without it, the one working so hard to move ahead only goes backward in this bitter wilderness. And as we forgive each one who has done us wrong to make us suffer, forgive us in your benevolence and don't pay attention to our actual merit. Don't tempt our strength, which is easily overwhelmed. It gives way before the ancient adversary. Keep it free from the one who goads us. This last prayer, our precious Lord, is not made for ourselves because there's no need, but for the ones who we have left behind. I'm sure if you know anything about Christian theology, you know part of what's going on here. We want to talk about that. This is a very ritualized prayer in Christian traditions, but it has been greatly changed. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about some initial concerns about this prayer. Then I'd like to go through it just looking at the original versus this. Then I'd like to go through it again and look at what Dante has added to the original. And finally, well, not quite finally, then (laughs) one more thing, I'd like to go through it and look at the controversies that Dante has written into the prayer before finally getting out to two large interpretive issues. So let's start off with some general comments. 
This prayer is the Paternoster, the Our Father, oft repeated, especially in liturgical churches, but by Christians everywhere and across Christian traditions. It is found in two places in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. That's the most common citation for this prayer. It is also found in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. But the one in Luke seems to be condensed in some way or elided in some way. It's usually the one from Matthew that everyone recites, and it's certainly the one that becomes in Latin the more familiar paternoster, if you know anything about or come out of the Catholic tradition. Let me say two things about this before we get into the prayer itself. One is that in so many pieces of commentary on this passage, people repeat something that Singleton said a long time ago, and they repeat it erroneously. And this is so fascinating to me. So many people, even the esteemed Dante scholar Robert Hollander, says this is the only prayer in comedy that is recited in totality. It is not. Singleton makes this comment that it's the only prayer recited in full in comedy. But I think what Singleton means is it's the only standard prayer recited fully in comedy, which is the truth. So the Salve Regina or the Hail Mary, these prayers are referred to, but they're not necessarily stated in full. There are other full prayers ahead of us, including the glorious one that opens the very last canto of comedy itself, a gorgeous prayer to the Virgin. No, this is not the only prayer in comedy. It's the only standard prayer that Christians routinely say that is stated in full in comedy. I think this is one of these things where Singleton means it in a more nuanced way, as I just explained it, but other people who may not exactly be seated inside of Christian traditions or may not come out of those traditions directly don't exactly know the difference between a standardized ritualized prayer and a prayer that someone makes up on the spot as allegedly happens at the end of comedy. I mean, it's not Dante's crafting a prayer there, but you know what I mean. It's not a standardized ritualized prayer, and somebody doesn't really know the difference in those two, and so they pick this up from Singleton, and they just start repeating it. So, no, this is not the only prayer recited in full in comedy. It's the only standardized prayer stated in full in comedy, and I think that's an important distinction. I think as we hit the first terrace at Purgatory, we should know that Dante feels uh, compelled, he feels the need to state out a full prayer. He could have done the Salve Regina here, he could have done the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria here. He chose the Paternoster, and he chose it because it is kind of the foundational prayer in the liturgy across liturgical sources. I think that's part of why it's sitting here. And one more thing before we get to the prayer itself. This is a corporate prayer. This is said by all of the penitents coming under their rocks. And I think we should go back to that last passage where we talked about corporate salvation, that we together can morph into the butterfly that floats up to justice. That idea of the corporate nature of redemption is reiterated here in the corporate nature of this prayer. Now, anybody who's been to any kind of liturgical church service knows that the congregants often recite the prayers together, and there is a ritualized corporate 
function, do we want to say, a function of these kinds of prayers. True enough, but we do live, as I've said repeatedly, in a late capitalist post-Reformation society. Even though we have a corporate recitation of the prayer, we tend to think it matters whether the individual is sincere or not. I don't know that in the end, Dante cares whether the individual is sincere. I think Dante thinks the corporate recitation of the prayer is salvific, that your basic attitude toward the prayer is less important than saying it as a group. Now, I am making that deduction out of reading comedy for years, but if I were you, I wouldn't take that deduction to the bank because, again, it is a supposition on my part. I don't have firm evidence to suggest that Dante thinks the corporate recitation of the prayer is more important than the individual feeling down in the prayer of each reciter. Okay, let's go back to the prayer and see how it morphs over the passage. What I'd like to do in this segment of the podcast is just look at the prayer as it sits in comedy and compare it to the original. So it goes in three-line stanzas. It goes by the tercets, and we'll start with the first one, lines one through three. Our Father who remains in heaven, not contained there except by the greater love you have for your first creations. This is Dante's rewriting of Our Father Who Art in Heaven, the opening of the Paternoster. And I'm going to use the old lingo, art and thine and thy, because it's the way most people know this prayer if they come out of a Christian tradition. So sorry for the old school language, but I think it mostly works for people who know the prayer. Okay, that's the first person. It goes on to the second three lines. Praise be your name and your might from every created thing, as is your due whenever we give thanks for your sweet breath. This is hallowed be thy name. So this is the second clause of the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, and now hallowed be thy name. And Dante expands this to three lines. Same thing in the next bit. Let the peace of your kingdom come to us, for we can't get it on our own because it won't naturally come to us, even with all our ingenuity. This is Dante's rephrasing of thy kingdom come which is the phrase in the prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And the next line is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Dante restates that at lines 10 through 12 as just as your angels willingly make sacrifices to you singing Hosanna, let people make the same. Then the prayer in the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew says, give us this day our daily bread. And Dante reinterprets that or rewrites it as give our daily manna to us today. Without it, the one going so hard to move ahead only goes backward in this bitter wilderness. Then the prayer in comedy goes on and says, and as we forgive each one who has done us wrong to make us suffer, forgive us in your benevolence and don't pay attention to our actual merit. And this is Dante's rewriting of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And finally, the prayer in the text ends with lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all evil. And Dante recasts this 
oddly, we'll talk about it, as don't tempt our strength, which is easily overwhelmed. It gives way before the ancient adversary. Keep it free from the one who goads us. Now, you might know that the prayer includes yet more lines. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Amen. You might know those lines as the back of it, but you'll notice they're not here. Instead, those lines are lopped off and we get these last three lines then which the penitents seem to qualify their prayer. This last prayer, our precious Lord, is not made for ourselves because there's no need, but for the ones who we have left behind. And this is a really tricky little last three lines in which Dante cuts off a piece of that prayer and then adds this as a rationale for the prayer as a whole. We're going to talk about that in the next part of this podcast. But what I've done now is I've gone through the text as it lies in comedy and I've compared it to the original prayer. Now let's talk through what Dante adds in each tercet. I'm going to start back at the beginning. First three lines. Our Father, who remains in heaven, not contained there except by the greater love you have for your first creations on high. Dante situates God in heaven. Now, the prayer does say, Our Father, who art in heaven. But Dante seems to localize God in heaven very carefully, not contained there except by the greater love. So God is actually willfully contained in heaven by the greater love you have for your first creations on high. Those are the angels. Dante is probably picking this up from Aquinas in the Summa Theologica in part one, question 20, article two. Aquinas makes the claim that God, of course, loves everything, but by nature loves the angels more than humans. Given that notion of Thomistic theology and a pretty standard theological explanation, we can see here that God is circumscribed into heaven, but not for any reason except he really loves the angels and that's where they are. That's what Dante adds to our Father who art in heaven. Going on, praise be your name and your might from every created thing, as is your due whenever we give thanks for your sweet breath. You'll notice that Dante takes the phrase, hallowed be thy name, and he refocuses name to include the concept of valore in the medieval Florentine. That is a kind of combination of power and worth or might with right. Dante takes this idea, hallowed be thy name, and he increases the volume on it by emphasizing God's power and worthiness. And he does something else, but we'll save that for a discussion of the controversies in the prayer. We're just going to pass on to the next three lines, lines seven through nine. Let the peace of your kingdom come to us, for we can't get it on our own because it won't naturally come to us even with all our ingenuity. You'll notice that Dante takes the phrase, thy kingdom come, and he reinterprets kingdom to essentially mean peace. Let the peace of your kingdom come to us. Now, you can interpret kingdom in a lot of ways. Let the order of your kingdom, let the rule of your kingdom, let the justice of your kingdom. But we have to think about Dante in a war-torn Italian landscape in exile. And it doesn't surprise us then that Dante seems to think that the dominant function of the kingdom of God is peace. You'll notice that Dante torques this, thy kingdom come, to move toward our humility. It won't naturally come to us even with all our ingenuity, which pulls us back to those intaglios of humility, 
in Canto 10. Moving on, just as your angels willingly make sacrifices to you, singing Hosanna, let people make the same. Here, Dante takes the phrase, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and Dante reinterprets it in a very specific way, and that is he takes heaven's and he makes heavens mean angels. We're going to talk about that in the controversies in just a minute. But that's a little odd, and it has a little bit of theological quagmire in it. So Dante takes the term heaven, and he refocuses it to mean angels. And you'll notice that Dante sticks music up in heaven, singing Hosanna. That's not in the Paternoster itself. This clearly tells us how important music actually is to Dante, the poet, and how important the form of music is to Dante. Moving on, give us our daily manna today. You'll notice that Dante has taken the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, and reinterpreted bread as manna. Well, let me explain this for a minute. Manna is the miraculous food that the wandering Israelites find in the wilderness after Sinai as they're condemned to wander around for 40 years until an entire generation dies off. This food is picked every morning off plants and rocks and the landscape. It's some kind of allegedly miraculous food that falls at night. A lot of commentators say that it's important to see this change from bread to manna because these are non-corporeal entities, these penitents under their rocks. And so they're looking for spiritual food, not physical food bread, and Dante acknowledges that with manna. I'm not sure I actually buy that argument because the Israelites in the wilderness did not see manna as spiritual food. They saw it as actual daily sustenance. And I think that's really important that we see here. What Dante is saying is give us the sustenance for our days. It is miraculous because it comes from you. But, and this is key to Dante, we're the ones who have to gather it. It's the Israelites who had to go out and gather the manna. And if they kept it more than one day, it went bad. They had to gather it every single day. But they had to do the action to retrieve it in order to sustain themselves in the wilderness. I think that's really important to this passage because I think it's not just that they're non-corporeal and so they need to eat spiritual food. It wasn't spiritual food back in Torah. It wasn't spiritual food as the Israelites wandered around. It was miraculous sustenance. And I think that's a better way to focus the shift from bread to manna. The passage goes on, as we forgive each one who has done us wrong to make us suffer, forgive us in your benevolence and don't pay attention to our merit. What's really interesting here is that Dante has reversed the phrase. In the original prayer, it's forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So Dante has turned that on its head and he's made forgiving those who trespass against us the first impetus of the phrase and then God's forgiveness as the second. We surely, again, don't have to push very far beyond Dante's life in a war-torn landscape to understand why that transposition would happen in these three lines. And then we get to an interesting line, uh, don't tempt our strength, which is easily overwhelmed. It gives way before the ancient adversary. Keep it free from the one who goads us. This we're going to save for the controversies because everything that Dante does here is controversial. (laughs) 
<laughs> this person. So the additions to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're going to save them because we just have to talk about them in the controversies. And finally, that last bit. Did Dante forget, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, etc.? Did he forget the end of the prayer? Um, it's not actually clear. We do know that Dante had to add this to refocus the prayer and to refocus it so that we understand that these penitents who are in purgatory proper no longer necessarily need to pray for themselves, but they're praying for those back amongst the land of the living. But this is the reason it's a little dicey and controversial. We don't know if Dante dropped for thine is the kingdom, etc., because we don't know if it was in Dante's Bible. You should just know that that last phrase, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, blah, 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 amen, that is actually added, and it is not in the most ancient manuscripts of the Bible. It may be considered by Christians canonical, but it's not in the original manuscripts, and it's added quite a bit later. Did Dante know it was added and so dropped it? I don't know. Was it in Dante's Bible, whereas it might not be, or was it not in Dante's Bible, whereas it is in mine? I don't know. This is a huge controversy because we don't actually know what Bible Dante had. It's nice to assume he had the Vulgate, the translation by St. Jerome, but we can't prove that. And there were other translations and copies of sacred scriptures. So the question of which Bible Dante was actually reading, including amended versions of the Vulgate, is an open sore in Dante's scholarship. All I can tell you is that the for thine is the kingdom is dropped off. Why? I don't know, but that the prayer is then refocused. Okay, now let's look at the controversies in the Tercets. I'm going to go back through the whole thing one more time. <laughs> Told you this is going to be a long podcast. Our Father who remains in heaven, not contained there except by the greater love you have for your first creations on high. God is localized in heaven and circumscribed there apparently willfully because of God's great love for the angels, the first creations. God is not omnipresent. God the Father is not everywhere. Instead, God the Father is localized in heaven. Later in Christian theology, we will come upon the notion, far beyond Dante, that all of God, all of the Trinity, in fact, is omnipresent, and that God is, in fact, everywhere. Not just the Holy Spirit, but God, and the essence of God is everywhere. This is a long tradition in Western Christianity, by which I mean Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, a long tradition of continuing to emphasize and emphasize more the presence of God. In Roman Catholicism, this idea of presence becomes so important that the host becomes the presence of Christ's body, and God is omnipresent because the presence of God is the most important function of God's being. And in fact, saints, relics, and even statues and paintings of saints become the localized 
presence of those saints. This is very much in contrast to Orthodox Christianity across the pond over toward Constantinople and the East. You know, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox. There, this is what's difficult, God's presence is fundamentally expressed by God's absence. This is the very heart of what is called the apophatic revelation. That is, God's presence is most expressed in the absence of God. And this is a really hard thing for Western Roman Catholic and Protestant Christians to understand. That is, when you stand at a place and you think, where's God in all of this? The thought, where's God in all of this, is the presence of God. So the absence of God is the presence of God. That thought is what makes the revelation happen. And it is part of what is called the apophatic revelation of orthodox thought. Did Dante know that? In other words, has he moved God so far up into heaven that he has absented God from this world and even purgatory in this world? That is a grand question, which we will continue to wrestle with over the course of comedy. Did Dante know anything about orthodox thinking post-great schism of the church? Don't know. Another grand question. Moving on to the next three lines. Praise be your name and your might from every created thing as is your due whenever we give thanks for your sweet breath. And it's this word breath that's the controversy. Here, many Dante scholars want to see Dante offering a node of the Trinity. The breath must be the Holy Spirit. If you know anything about Trinitarian thought, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, they're not even parts of God, co-equal expressions of God who are in communion with one another. And the question here is by inserting the word breath, has Dante given a little wisp of Trinitarian thinking? Dante is without a doubt very Trinitarian, as we will see. Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether this bit here is Dante's attempt to offer a second person of the Trinity into the prayer that is actually not there in the original Paternoster, or whether Dante is just simply meaning that God emanates throughout creation. Then the next three lines, let the peace of your kingdom come to us, for we can't get it on our own because it won't naturally come to us even with all our ingenuity. Here's what I want to say about this. Dante seems in the early cantos of purgatory proper, that is post-gate, and perhaps even in all of the early cantos of purgatorio, to really emphasize original sin. We saw this in the last episodes in Canto 10, where humans were just worms in the dirt, unformed, shapeless worms in the dirt. And we can kind of see this original sin idea floating around there. It seems as if Dante is holding to a more orthodox notion of original sin early on in Purgatorio. But I'm just warning you, and this has nothing to do with this passage except to say it clearly indicates a kind of original sin. We can't get to redemption on our own. I'm just warning you that it's about to change right in front of I can see it right over the horizon. It's about to change right in front of us. And Dante's thinking on original sin seems to morph in Purgatorio. But uh, that's ahead of us. And I'm just warning you about it here. Moving on in the prayer, just as your angels willingly make sacrifices to you singing Hosanna, let people make the same. This is a little bit of interesting controversy here because Dante, again, as I told you, has reinterpreted heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's reinterpreted that to mean angels. That reinterpretation is a little funky, and here's why. The question of when the angels were created 
is immense. <laughs> it befuddles many. Some scholars, and including those in the Thomistic or St. Thomas Aquinas tradition, say that they were created with the heavens. So when it says, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens there means not only the physical space, but all that's in the heavens, including angels. That's okay, but there are many who think otherwise. And you'll notice that by reinterpreting heaven as angels in this passage, Dante has moved the angels out of the terrestrial sphere and up into the heavenly sphere. This seems to be increasingly Dante's thought. That is, that angels may exist in the terrestrial world, but are kind of locked to the afterlife parts. That is, the parts in Inferno with the messenger who comes over the swamp and saves them at the gates of Dis, who may or may not be an angel, all the way to the angels in Purgatory proper. But maybe Dante has locked angels out of our living terrestrial existence. This will become a better and clearer question as we move through comedy, but it may have a little note here in the reinterpretation of heaven as angels. The prayer goes on, give us our daily manna to us today, as I translated it, without it, the one working so hard to move ahead only goes backward in this bitter wilderness. This is a tie back. Remember, in the invective inserted into the text by the poet in the last canto, he talked about prideful Christians and their backward leading steps. This is again connecting pride to this idea that you move backwards. It somehow stops forward momentum. And we should note that Dante's done a really nice poetic thing here in that he has called bread manna and then he's brought up the wilderness, which brings us back to the Sinai Peninsula and the wandering of the Israelites post Mount Sinai and all that. He's kind of tied it nicely into metaphoric space that will become important to us ahead. As we go on in the prayer, we forgive each one who has done us wrong to make us suffer and so forgive us in your benevolence and don't pay attention to our actual merit. It's just hard not to overemphasize the notion of a poet in exile. I mean, it's suffering. This is what he's added to it. Forgive each one who has done us wrong to make us suffer. That's added to the prayer, to make us suffer. Clearly, this is coming out of Dante's war-torn, exilic experience and his personal space suffering at the hands of others is entering into it. In the prayer itself, it's kind of open-ended. What did other people do to us? Well, it could be suffering, but it could just be slighting us or, you know, saying mean things about us or stealing our money. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're suffering. Dante has qualified it, I think, based on his own experience as an exilic figure in war-torn Italy. And finally, don't tempt our strength, which is easily overwhelmed. It gives way before the ancient adversary. Keep it free from the one who goads us. This is probably the most interesting shift and most controversial shift in the entire prayer. In Western Christian tradition, and again, when I say that, I'm meaning Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, this phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, 
usually is interpreted as evil things. Deliver us from everything evil. Deliver us from all the evil things. You'll notice that Dante here reinterprets that evil as the ancient adversary, the evil one. Don't tempt our strength, which is easily overwhelmed. It gives way before the ancient adversary, as if that line is originally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that is the dominant way the translation and interpretation happens in Orthodox Christianity over there in Constantinople. Not evil things, but the line of that prayer refers to Satan, the evil one, the adversary. Dante then seems slightly aware of Orthodox theology. Is he? Is he feeling free to change the prayer? Unclear. But I can say this is another node where we think, hmm, is Dante, in fact, aware of shifts between, as I say, Western, and it's a funky word to use, but the Western side of the church and the Eastern side of the church? And is he sometimes stepping over that line into Eastern theology? This might be a place where we can say he is, but all we have is this little text to go on, and that's not a firm foundation for much more than a pretty good supposition. Okay, we've done all of that, and now we still have our two big interpretive questions left. So let's get to them, and they're tough. Let me say, first, why does Dante feel free to adapt a ritualized prayer? Why does Dante do this? Now, I think there's a reason why he puts the Paternoster as the first bit on the first terrace of purgatory proper. I think that's fair enough. But why does Dante feel he has the liberty to take what is a very standardized prayer and alter it, add to it, and controversial material to it? Why? Well, of course, you probably know that my first answer is going to be hubris. Maybe on the terrace of pride, Dante the poet is exhibiting a form of pride. Now, not the pilgrim. But the poet, that's a little bit too meta for me. I know. Can anything be too meta for me? It's a little bit too meta for me, and I don't feel on solid ground when I say it. But it does niggle in the back of my mind. My first response is hubris. Okay, the poet just thinks, gosh, I can write the Paternoster better, and I'm going to do it, and here it is. Well, maybe if that's the case, then it's funny it happens on the Terrace of Pride. Or is it this, that those in this part of the afterlife, that is the afterlife where the redeemed are purgating their sins, is it that they understand more than we do? So we have a collapsed version of this prayer, and Dante is trying to say that once you get this far into the afterlife, and once you get in through the gate of purgatory, and you know know more about God, and your uh, sinful self is being washed away, that the prayer expands. In other words, I have a contracted version of the prayer, and this is an expansive one, and that might fit in with better notions of comedy. You and I probably have a very truncated notion of the afterlife, of what happens after we die. But comedy has a hundred cantos of material about what happens after we die. So comedy expands our rather limited notion of the afterlife. And maybe this is a note of that. Those in the better part of the afterlife, this first little bit of the better part of the afterlife, are able to expand from the truncated version of the prayer we know. Or, and this is the third answer, 
does poetry itself, the ability to write poetry, give Dante the authority to actually amend the biblical text? Does poetic authority become cotemporaneous with biblical authority? Does, in fact, the ability to imagine as a poet allow you a kind of equivalent authority even to this most foundational prayer of Christianity. If that's the case, then Dante clearly believes he is becoming almost an oracular poet, an Apollo Delphic oracle poet, a poet who is capable of actually rewriting foundational pieces of the Christian tradition. Whoa. Okay, and one more thing. I told you this is going to be long. One more thing. Let's talk about what happens here because I think this is the key to all those weird bits of Canto 10 that we finished up with. And I think this prayer shows us the key to Dante's thought. And let me state it baldly, and then I'll come back to it. I believe that Dante thinks... That's that's already suspect, right? I believe that Dante thinks. Okay, well, anyway, I believe that Dante's poetics indicate that sacred space creates metaphoric space, which creates actual space. Let me explain that a little more. I think Dante thinks... I think Dante thinks... There it is again. We're insane. Okay, but I'm going to say it. I think Dante thinks... That the sacred, that is the God-directed, actually creates the space that poetry can exist in, and poetry creates the space, and art creates the space that the physical world can exist in. And this is why Dante insists that the journey is real, because the poetic space is founded on divine, sacred space, which then creates the actual, I did in fact go here, the actual journey. And I think this is the bit of Dante's thinking that is very meta and very hard to understand. And I will point back to a line in Canto 10, line 115. When Virgil first sees the penitents coming around the bend and speaks to Dante about them, what he says is their grave condition the grave condition of their torments squashes them down. And he uses this word grave. Ultimately, grave means heavy, heavy or hard grave, but it carries the notion of ponderousness. And I translated it, the ponderous condition of their torments, because I wanted to give it that metaphoric space. And you'll notice that what Virgil does is he first uses a metaphor, ponderous, to actually then focus the physical truth, boulders squashing people. In other words, when he uses that word in the grave condition, grave is first metaphoric. It describes their condition, and then we realize it describes their actuality pressed down by rocks. I think right there we can see poetic space is preceding actual physical space, or to put it another way, metaphoric space is preceding actual space. And inside of that bit, as we discussed last time, inside of the appearance of the first penitence, we get that invective from the poet about proud Christians and weary wretches and all that bit that we talked about sinners in the hand of an angry God. Well, that 
prophetic oracle is sacred space. So into the middle of metaphoric and actual space enters sacred space, the prophetic oracle. So again, Dante's, what do I say, his poetic ideology, his cosmology ultimately is founded on this idea that sacred space, the divine emanation, gives birth to the poetic space, which then gives birth to the actual space. And I can make it even more complicated. Ready? (laughs) You know I want to. Sacred space as imagined by Dante, gives way or runs into or becomes metaphoric or poetic space as crafted by Dante, which then gives way, becomes, or morphs into the actual space as imagined by Dante. It's this unbelievable bit of imaginative bravado, imagining the sacred space that gives birth to the metaphoric poetic space that gives birth to the actual space. And it's so wild. I'm going to leave you with that. I'm not going to reread the prayer. We've read it a dozen times. Well, not quite, but several times already in this podcast. I'm going to leave it there and say, this is complicated. And you got to brace yourself even more for what's ahead. I hope you've enjoyed this long episode. Sorry, there's no way to do this except long, long episode of the podcast. Welcome with Dante. I hope you'll consider supporting this podcast. There's a link where you can help support it through PayPal. You become a patron of the podcast. I thank everyone who has done that. This podcast is brought to you already by, what, almost two dozen people. I thank you so much for that. You can find other ways to support the podcast, including rating like it and subscribe to it. Well, we're going to pass off this prayer and find out who among these souls is saying it and even push ourselves further into a theory of art that Dante is foisting on us, his readers. I'm Mark Scarborough, and just you wait for the next steps. (laughs) 